Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. Hi, you two. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Great. It is a ceaseless joy to me to wake up in the fall to blustery weather and consider that here at Halloween season, <laughs> we all get to chase a particular feeling. And I, I wanted to talk to you about this feeling because I was thinking about it the other day. There aren't actually any... Halloweeny movies that really quite get at what I feel at Halloween time. Mm. How does it feel to you to think about this particular season? Because I feel like I'm chasing something all the time, and it's a vibe that I cannot quite find in pop culture and media. Really, not Do you even like this? the Harry Potter vibe, or like Harry Potter's close. At least the f- the first one is close. That cartoon, The Legend of Ichabod Crane, and Sleepy mm. Hollow. I think oh, that that's pretty good. captures it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what defines it though? Because for me, I think about that and I think, okay, it's a little spooky. That's nice. There's mist and everything. Animation's really cool. But it's food. For I mean, I think hmm. maybe it's the for food. me. It's the it's the juxtaposition, if I may use such a word, oh, so early oh in the my morning. Goodness. It's the juxtaposition of the really really cold, creepy outdoors and the warm, loud, happy, convivial mm. indoors. And there are like yes. scene to scene, back and forth in in Ichabod, Mister Crane. That feels, I don't know, like the Halloween season to me. Last year, we watched The Village, and I thought that was also pretty close. But I have a dark streak, and so the the slight tinge of creepy, I love. Uh-huh. Those are pretty good. I just feel like it's not bottomless, though, because when I go, what, instinctively what I think is, oh, I need a Disney movie. We need Disney because they're really, really good at capturing a feeling like that. And making it a story and making it a memory, you know, vault. Yeah. And there really kind of isn't one. It's a good point, Megan. Ichabod and, yeah. and whatever what is it, it is. Ichabod and Mr. Toad? Ichabod Mr. Crane Toad. is his name. It's two, well, it's, yeah. two, it's two short films, right? So there's Put together. Ichabod Crane and then there's Mr. Toad. This year, Disney Plus came out with Werewolf by Midnight. Oh, yeah. I was, it was super fun. It's not quite the vibe you're talking about. They were going for more of like a old, like Boris Karloff, Frankenstein mm, kind of mm-hmm. feel, but that was super fun. It was. Although if our listeners are watching with little kids, it is shockingly violent every once in a while. So please know that. <laughs> well, it's part of the Marvel universe. So yeah. Slightly older. Well, I, for one, I'm glad that there's a nip in the air. We had such a long summer this year. Like it was almost 80 degrees well into like last week, mm-hmm. which is crazy to me. Well, it's unusual for the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So I'm really glad that, that it's fall time. I'm going to go dig out my sweaters today, which is just like one of the holidays of the year in my household. <laughs> like it's time to dig out our sweaters, partially for the reason that when you're wearing a sweater, it's easier to be just a little bit thick around the middle. <laughs> sweaters <laughs> sweaters make me feel like no one can see that I'm a little thick around the middle. And I, it's really wonderful. Anyway, welcome to my life. <laughs> and this has been TED discussion. Talks <laughs> This has been TED Talks about fall weather and sweaters. So it's time for some, for some lame. Miz, some Les Miserables. This is an unremittingly dark section, even very, if you know where the story is going to go. I mean, oh, this is very heavy. What do you guys think? Very thinky. 
very thinky. Existential. French existentialism is in this section. (laughs) Say more, Megan. (laughs) Yeah. Well, just Jean Valjean considering what it is that he should do and getting all twisty and thinking about his purpose as a human being and the reason for life. I just, it feels like a French philosopher going at it, you know? Yeah, I think you, yeah, totally. I get that vibe too. Emily, what about you? Well, I just, this morning when I was reviewing, I was looking at normally our chapters with like the, the smaller chapters within the books are quite short. But that chapter number three, A Tempest Within the Brain, is very long. Uh It's a very long chapter. I thought I was never going to get out of it. Maybe I was supposed to feel like I could never get out of my own brain. (laughs) The endless maze of the human consciousness. (laughs) Yeah. But that was that was aggressive. Yeah. And I wonder if that's another instance of some some concrete poetry. Remember, we talked early, like maybe even in the first episode about how we get a really, really long description of one building and then a teeny tiny description of another building. And it was like in the text what you were supposed to think about and feel about. I wonder if that's the same thing here. Uh, Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. So that is kind of where we open our reading for the day with and and to catch the listeners up, if you're just diving in now, a man has been accused of being Jean Valjean and he is on trial in uh, a town called Megan, help me with pronunciation. Eris? Aras? I don't actually know this time. I think so. Okay. Well, anyway, it's A-R-R-A-S. And it's a town that is, the distance away actually becomes really important because he waits so long to decide whether he's going to go speak up and save this man at trial that getting there is a little bit of a difficulty. But we, we open on his internal consternation over this issue. The thing that really interested me about that section was that he is actually wholeheartedly with his conscious mind trying to do what is good and right. He wants to choose the the best option while his subconscious mind constantly betrays him and attempts to trick him into becoming a demon again, which is the language that that Hugo uses, right? It's very, very very extreme. He can either either be an angel or demon. And his subconscious is trying to trick him. His self-interest is peeking its way through this discussion at all times, while he, with his conscious mind, tries to drag providence in by the hair to find a way to make a good decision. Do you think that's a fair characterization of what's going on here? I think so. This was, I don't know if this is revelatory about me, but this was eminently relatable to me. The feeling of, well, if I can, if I can rationalize my way into, into providence having orchestrated the circumstance that I'm in, then everything's okay and I can just relax and accept it, even if pangs of conscience or conviction are accompanying that rationalization. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just, it's so unfair. He's put in this position and everything would be okay if he didn't do anything. And then like, even as you said, like there is part of his nature that is trying to do the right thing. And as he tries to do it, just obstacle after obstacle is put in his way. And at any of those points, I would have just given up. And like that moment when the, like the last one, when the wheel breaks Uh and he's like, this is it. Can't move on. Like totally. That would have been me. Like, Oh, Oh, too bad. <laughs> right. Oh, bummer. I guess I can't turn myself in. But even there, it was really impressive how many times he tried to make it work. I mean, he, of course, was discouraged when the old woman came and gave him a solution. But before that, he had asked like 17 different times if there was a solution to the broken wheel. It was 
it was quite a fight he put up against his inner man. Yeah, it reminds me, there's a friend of ours, um, and I, I doubt that he's listening to the show, but if he is, hey there, who likes to talk about playing chicken with God. <laughs> he, says, he says, discerning the will of providence is really, really hard. So what I usually do is decide what I want to do and then run headlong at it and trust that eventually either God will swerve or I will swerve. <laughs> and that seems to be what Valjean is doing here. Obviously, he doesn't want to turn himself in. And I think his the other thing about these kinds of discussions in the in the maze that is our consciousness is that we make some good points to ourselves. He makes some really good points to himself. It, it, at one point he says in five in five years i will have made 10 millions and and also our understanding as readers of the scope of his generosity and the way that his presence as an individual is impacting the whole region and the whole country is enlarged here we get a we get a broader sense of his impact and so for him to say i'm going to go turn myself in and submit to a life of bondage again in order to save this one old dude who probably deserves the sentence for one reason or another at the expense of hundreds of thousands of people. That's a decision too big for us, I think. And I think it's supposed to be like, a, on the one hand, it's a rationalization to get him out of doing something difficult. But on the other hand, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. What did you guys make of the fact that Hugo two times compares these temptations to Christ's temptations before I didn't the cross? Even catch that. In the, in the garden. Let's see, on page 234 is the perhaps the largest one at the end in the conclusion. Uh, he says, in this way, his unhappy soul struggled with its anguish. 1800 years before, this unfortunate man, the mysterious being in whom all the sanctities and all the sufferings of humanity come together, he too, while the olive trees trembled in the fierce breath of the infinite, had brushed away the fearful cup that appeared before him, streaming with shadow and running over with darkness in the star-filled depths. So Jesus in Gethsemane, right? Let this cup pass from me? Yeah. That's the second of two times that Jean Valjean is compared to Jesus in his temptations. Interesting. Well, yeah. So back to the romanticism of the piece, Hugo doesn't ever stop before saying the ultimate thing there is to say in the vein he's working in. <laughs> right? Jean Valjean is not just going to be a man who makes a sacrifice. He's going to be Christ himself. <laughs> and I think that's really funny. But that moment is followed immediately by the dream he had, the vision. Yeah, I was, I want to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about the vision for a second. I think we've sufficiently set up the problem, right? Does he go and save Champ Mathieu and basically say, it's me. I'm prisoner 24601 uh, at the top of his lungs in a stirring tenor voice. Um, or, or I did he... hear Colm Wilkinson in my mind just then. <laughs> just absolutely belting it to the back of an opera hall. Does he go and do that or does he stay in his position and live with the fact that he sent a man to hard labor for the rest of his life in order to benefit you know, hundreds of thousands. Yep. And before the dream, there's a passage that says, no matter what he choosed, choose. Chose. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should keep that in. Don't Lock you it. dare cut that shot. <laughs> Either option leads to death, right? He's dying. Either right. it's going to be the death of his happiness or the death of his virtue, it says. But I think it's interesting that before this dream, he puts it in terms of life and death and life isn't an option. Death is the right. only option. Well, and that ties back into an earlier moment when he's talking about the two goals of his life, which are to conceal himself from man in order to return to God. 
right? This is what he's done in his life in this little town. He has become someone else so that he could live in a godly way. And if anyone finds out who he really is, all that will come crumbling down. And that's a little bit of a of a paradox on the theological side of things, right? What actually granted him forgiveness in the first place was being seen and named with his own name by the bishop. The bishop called him not only Jean Valjean, but also brother. He called him brother. And so I guess the question I have is, can he be a brother to anyone if he is actually hiding? And maybe that ties into the life and death. He's living death already. And so there aren't any other options. Yeah, I can't find the scene. I wish I could, but it directly supports what you're saying, that Jean Valjean chose in becoming the mayor two things, a life of goodness and a life of isolation. So I wonder if that's a living death of sorts because he's not participating fully in community. He's not being anyone's brother. He's being a figure of divine goodness instead. And I'm not sure that that's fully good for him. Well, he he, th- he thinks of himself as imitating the bishop, I think. Consciously, he's trying to do it the way the bishop would do it. But the bishop didn't have anything to hide. Well, But to his credit, we're told that up until this moment, he always chose virtue over hiding. Yeah, but that's he, true. He dresses in mourning when the bishop dies. He gets that guy out from under the cart, even though Javert is watching and suspicious. He looks for Petit Gervais every chance he gets. Yep. So it's a weird double bind. Like he really is trying, but there's a sense in which he's trying so hard because he's hiding. And the more he tries, the harder he hides. So with that in mind, let's dive into this dream, which the first time I read it, I thought this doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not sure what weird rambling we've been let in on, but it's starting to make more sense the more we talk around it. This, do, do either of you want to summarize this dream for us? Uh, sure. Uh, Jean Valjean imagines that he's walking through a town, which he decides is Romanville because he was randomly thinking about it before he fell asleep. And as he walks through the town, he notices that no one is doing anything. No one is walking anywhere. Uh, There's just men hiding behind doors and corners. And as he passes through the town, which is all the color of earth, even the sky, everything is colorless. When he comes out of the town, he looks back and all of those men have followed him out. They ask him, where are you going? Don't you know you've been dead for a long time? Uh-huh. I opened my mouth to answer and I realized no one was there. And then he wakes up. So I understand, I understand the dead imagery to some extent. I don't necessarily understand the creepy men hiding behind doorways. Do you guys have anything to say about that? What do you think, Megan? Well, I don't know if my instinct is right. I, I thought on my first reading that the men are, are him. Like each of the men is another instance of the self that he's been hiding from because what he says to each of them is the same. What is this place? Where am I? And in the end, they all follow him and they stand with him in the field and they say, you've been dead for a long time. What are you running from? Why are you running from us? You've been dead for a long time. And it seems thematically like it would work if they were some kind of representation of a self he didn't want to acknowledge. But maybe that's too deep. No, I don't know. I read it uh, the other way with the same thematic emphasis that all of these these men are are what he has made everyone he knows. 
by hiding from mm. them. They are faceless because he is faceless. You cannot know unless you're willing to be known kind of a situation. That's and so good. all the people that he's been trying to bless and lead and affirm and love are actually they're not shades. known to him. Yeah, they're all shades. Uh, do you guys remember this whole section is actually set up by Hugo telling us that to write the epic of man's mind would be a greater endeavor than Homer or Dante or Milton. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he's continuing the epic theme here by giving Jean Valjean a descent into hell. Well, it certainly feels like Halloween-y imagery. I mean, you've got a, <laughs> a man riding by naked on a horse and he's like a, a hairless skeletal. I mean, he's like a skeleton rider chasing Jean Valjean down. This definitely seems like a hellish scene. Yeah, no kidding. Although... <laughs> <laughs> Not to give us all a giant hand slap here, but this dream, like most dreams, bore no relation to the situation beyond its mournful, poignant character. <laughs> oh, if it, that was true, you wouldn't have included it, you know. Get out of here, Victor. <laughs> Victor Hugo, get out. So did anybody else find it interesting that he booked his little cart with the strong horse and everything? Before he'd actually decided to do anything? It was like the Petit Gervais section when there's like a divide between his conscious mind and his subconscious that he's doing only it's like the reverse, right? He's doing stuff subconsciously because he like in his secret heart probably knows what he's going to do. But like with his conscious self, he's doing everything to not acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. The other possibility that I have scribbled in my notes is that this is a Tolstoyan kind of tension between the impulse of the man and a hand of providence or sovereignty. If you look at the, like a page Bottom of the page of chapter five on page 238, he says, he was plunging into the dark as into a yawning gulf. Something was pushing him and something drew him on. Whatever was going on inside him, no one could describe, but everyone will understand. Who has not entered at least once in his lifetime, this dark cavern of the unknown, but he had resolved nothing, decided nothing, determined nothing, done nothing. None of the acts of his conscience had been final. More than ever, he was just as he had been at the start. I thought that was interesting, yeah. given that what that would imply is he's taking actions that he doesn't mean to. There's something acting for him and making him act that's beyond his self-control. Yep. I underlined page 245 along the same lines. He asks himself after feeling joy that he's going to have to go back home. He says, why should he feel joy at going back? After all, he was making a journey of his own accord. Nobody was forcing him into it, and certainly nothing could happen that he did not choose to have happen, which is not true. Just yeah, that under, yeah, it underlines the same tension that he does feel compelled and forced in a way. Otherwise, he wouldn't feel joy at going back. You know? Yeah, it's, for it's sure. An ironical statement. Well, and I think that continues right on up to the courtroom when he. He arrives and he and this is after Providence apparently has intervened a million times trying to keep him from getting there. And and somehow he makes it making him go. Yeah. yeah, he makes it to to the courtroom and the trial is still in progress. And he hands in his name to the judge and says, I'd like to witness the, the trial. And after being granted permission to enter, the only way into the room is from behind the judge's bench. Which is just the coolest bit of of imagery. I mean, it's a little on the nose, perhaps, but very, very cool that the way he walks into this room is in the position of someone who decides. 
And he walks mm-hmm. in from behind the judge's bench after running away once, right? Yeah. He runs away down the hall and like a caged animal and then just can't, he can't bring himself to desert this guy. And so he goes back in and sits with the judge behind the bench. Oh, the cool. other bit of imagery is that he notices the crucifix above the judge's head says that this was fascinating. This is, yeah. It's a new development since when he was in, in Jean Matthew's position, uh, it says above the head of the judge was the crucifix, something not in courtrooms at the time of his sentence. When he was tried, God had been absent. God's not absent here. And the difference is Jean Valjean is present. Uh-huh. Well, and yeah, I think you're right. I understand how that came out, but I think you're right. I think he is. It's obvious that his soul has been gripped by providence. And so in stepping into the room, he brings the the presence of that providential hand which is just so interesting i know we've talked about this a couple times before but there it's clear that hugo is pointing out problems with the social structure and the judicial system of his country but he he never comes out and like i mean i guess a couple times he's come out and like said things need to change but he doesn't the solution he offers is never, well, you could do this with the judicial system or you could change this. It's always, it's always this, right? God was present. The crucifix was there. Someone substituted themselves for another. Like these are the solutions that he's pointing to. Yeah. That repeated phrase, there was one who was there that no human eye could see comes up again and again in two contexts. It's for Jean Valjean and his struggle with Providence and for Fontaine as well. So two victims of this social system are being chased through their stories by an ever-present God who's validating their sufferings and making them do what they don't want to do all at the same time. I think it's a fascinating combination. Yeah. Yeah. And the the imagery, as we've pointed out multiple times, does get, uh, what's the word? Extreme. Yes. When he finally does step into the middle of the court and demand that each of these convicts look at him and recognize him in order to get Matthew off the hook, his hair has turned <laughs> starkly white. In that <laughs> moment. <laughs> in that very moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's like Christ weeping tears of blood, right? I mean, it's a it is miraculous a miraculous change because yeah. I don't think that like it, that happens at the roots scientifically this is impossible (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't i don't know if it's scientifically impossible but i'm pretty sure victor hugo didn't know it was scientifically possible when he wrote it (laughs) so it's definitely imagery but he steps into the room and from that point on i I, we didn't get to read them side by side because it we wait until we come home to see fontine again before this is revealed but she talks about how in her delusions She's mm-hmm. been seeing angels, right? She's been seeing these white figures and he is one of them. She's been watching him throughout his whole ordeal and he has been shining with glory. Well, she says he's surrounded by celestial beings mm-hmm. and that agrees with the imagery we're given of him feeling like there are combatants in his soul, right? Mm-hmm. The, the goddess and the giant giantess in his soul battling for supremacy. And the feeling of being pushed and pulled. If there really are angelic beings all around him, they're they're manhandling him into the courtroom, you know. Well, Hugo uses the descri- the defense, the self-defense of Champ Matthew and then Valjean's explanation of the scenario to reinforce his political point. We get a picture of Champ Matthew's life and it is unbelievably bleak 
and he's been held down by an oppressive society that is now trying to, for no good reason, chew him up and spit him out. And Valjean says, I'm being oppressed. Look at him repressing me. (laughs) Look at him repressing Um, me. But Valjean says something similar. He says, the infamy from which I have sought to rise is pernicious. The prison makes the convict. Make of this what you like. Before prison, I was a poor peasant, unintelligent, a sort of idiot. Prison changed me. I was stupid. I became wicked. I was a log. I became a firebrand. Later, I was saved by indulgence and kindness, as I had been lost by severity. But pardon me, you cannot understand what I am saying. One gets the sense Hugo is saying that to his own culture of readers. So what do you make of the what do we make of the courtroom's response to Valjean? I thought it was, again, not subtle, but still profound that the response of all of these keepers of the law and judges and prosecutors and everyone whose job is to uphold justice, they all pause and they forget how to do their job. And everyone stands dazzled by his self-sacrifice. It's so counterintuitive in their world of checks and balances and keeping things even and, I don't know, surviving, trying to be on the right side of everything. Here he is willingly going to the wrong side of something for the sake of someone else, and it dazzles the law and pauses it. It reminds me, of course, of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan makes death work backwards. And Mm -hmm. he knows about a a deeper magic from before the dawn of time and turns the system on its head. It's, Mm -hmm. of course, a Christological image again. But I think that that word dazzled is a beautiful one to use here. Law is dazzled by grace in this moment. The details, the possible hesitation, the slight reluctance were lost in this immense luminous fact. But it, it doesn't stick around for the right. next sentence, right? It was an impression that quickly passed. For the moment, it was irresistible. Yeah, it's long enough for him to go home. Well, I just, if we're continuing with the Christological imagery, the fact that Jean Matthew, at the end of this chapter, it says, he was immediately set free, went on his way stupefied, thinking all men mad and understanding nothing of this whole fantastic vision mm-hmm. that the recipient of this dazzling grace it does still doesn't deserve it doesn't understand it the people are going to forget about it it's not something that lasts or has a lasting impression at least for the human participants in it that doesn't it's interesting to me that that doesn't matter at all yeah it doesn't change the fact of it the fact remains that Sean matthew was about to be sent to sentenced to hard labor for life and now he's walking free because of this gracious act whether he understands it or not has no bearing on whether it happened. Mm-hmm. Also, maybe it wasn't for him. I think one of the conversations that Hugo is having in this scene has to do with whether or not God is present, even in the broken social system. The way that that the justice system worked in this day, a convict couldn't swear the oath. He couldn't take the oath before he testified even because he'd lost his right to to speak as a citizen, but within the oath is a reference to the name of God. He can't call on the name of God anymore because Mm. he's lost that right. And here Jean Valjean steps into the scene and brings God with him into into the judicial system. And there is an indescribable divinity that halts everything. And I think maybe that's not for Jean Mathieu. It might be for Hugo's larger conversation. Watch how the presence of God and the grace and mercy 
halts everything in the, the social system. And isn't there hope in that? Well, we're at this point only halfway through our section, so we should probably probably pick up the pace here a little bit. Let's dive into the second half, which is the story of Fantine's death and the confrontation between Valjean and Javert. I found the description of Javert in this section very interesting. What does he call him? Some kind of archangel? Yeah, he. it's, a, a, it's a actually... A bestial archangel? Mm-hmm. A superhuman bestiality of a ferocious archangel. That's that's great. That man, the chain of being, right, is something that's kind of ingrained into us. Mm. And you don't want to become a beast, but you do want to become an angel. Yeah. And the fact that actually what you have to be is a human. And for a human to become an angel is out of the nature of things. Yeah. Well, it becomes terrible. Javert looks like a monster at the end of this scene. He's described as having all of the evil of good. I mean, on the one hand, you're still good, I guess, except you're only the bad parts of being good. (laughs) This is confusing to me. Yeah, well, I think the tension is beautifully drawn because what Javert is after is righteousness with a capital R. And he has identified that with the law, with justice. But as we know, God is more than just, right? That's what Hugo keeps telling us. And so... To pursue righteousness, capital R, in the way that Javert is doing it is to ignore a whole side of God's character, to ignore a, to ignore half of what makes righteousness righteousness. And so in as much as he is on the right side of the law here, but has no grace in his being, he has he has become a beast. He's become an animal that's incapable of understanding what he's looking at. And is self-satisfied and takes a, a wicked delight in carrying out his duty. The imagery of life and death is continued to book eight opens with Jean Valjean coming back. And Sister Simplice is like, what happened to your hair? And he doesn't know. And mm-hmm. she's a nun, so she doesn't have a mirror, but she finds a mirror. It says she rummaged in a case of instruments and found a little one in the infirmary physician. Uh, that the infirmary physician used to see whether the breath had left the patient's body. Mm. So she holds up the mirror to him, but the image is checking if he has life in him. And Javert enters and Fantine has been talking with Jean Valjean and she looks over his shoulder and it's like death has entered the room. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it causes her death, right? So Javert is death. I love that image of Monsieur Madeleine or Jean Valjean being being life, still alive somehow, in spite of the assertion that he's he's already dead. There's that mm-hmm. tension of the Christian life. And then here, this representative of the law, the purpose of the law is to kill you, to remind you that you were insufficient and imperfect in all these ways. So it's an obvious but but powerful image. But I also loved that when Jean Valjean looks at himself in the mirror, what he says is, white. And then he moves on. And I think that is so abrupt. And at the same time, possibly significant because white is associated, the color or the lack of color is associated with purity and cleanliness and Mm -hmm. righteousness. And I mean, again, it's on the nose and abrupt, but significant. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This scene for all of its brilliant characterization is not super complicated. Right. He is he is trying to before he gets taken away, which he's going to, he's trying to take care of Fontaine and she dies. And that is the first thing that cracks his 
resolve, right? He's resolved to give himself up. And when Javert enters, he meekly submits, asks for three days to set a couple of things right. And Javert's behavior is what tips Fontaine over the edge and she passes. And in that moment, Valjean decides, okay, enough of this. And he I'm takes- a stronger <laughs> man by far. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He walks over to so a, steel, a steel bedstead and he tears off one of the spokes, one of these steel bars. And looks at Javert and says, I wouldn't, basically. <laughs> I wish you would try and touch me right now. <laughs> uh, this chapter is called Authority Gains Its Power. Hugo says at the beginning of that chapter, Jean Valjean, from here on, we will call him by no other name. Uh-huh. He stood up. There, uh, that all seems very significant. I think so, too. The authority in the title, I don't think, is the authority of the law and Javert. Mm-hmm. It seems to be the the righteous authority of Jean Valjean. Even the moment where Fantine dies and Jean Valjean, as you've said, Ian, totally snaps and has now, he's changed his mind about the way he's going to behave now. He puts his hand on Javert's hand that's holding him and opens it as he would have opened the hand of a child and says, you have killed this woman. So... It's fatherly. It's firm. He's in control of the situation. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. And there's even a part of me that goes, well, what are you doing? Like, you're in the wrong to be fleeing the law. But now that it has no social consequences, mm-hmm. that to capture Jean Valjean would not be to help anyone anymore, like it was when he turned himself in for right. Shop Matthew. Now, Hugo seems to be saying he's in the right to the law and the punishment. I, I wonder about that. It, not to disagree, you might be right. But the other thought that I had, though, is that what what Jean Valjean is being asked to do is lay down his life for the sake of someone else, right? And that someone else is, is Sean Matthew. But the temptation from the beginning is to look at staying in his position and continuing to fuel the lives of all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people as laying down his life, laying down his prerogative to do it right and to be right in his soul. And he knows that to let Sean Matthew go off and take his punishment for him would mean that he was never in his own heart good again, ever. Because he hasn't stood up and taken the penalty of the law. He would have to submit to unrighteousness in order to continue doing good, which I think is this awesome paradox. And here we have him more or less submitting to that paradox, too. Again, in the end, he has to flee the law in order to care for Cosette, which is what's coming. And so, I don't know, there's no way for Valjean to ultimately be wholly righteous. He stands on the opposite side of the law and grace dichotomy of righteousness from Javert. Javert has the law on his side, but has no heart. And Valjean has has grace on his side, but will never be right before the law again. And it, ma- it makes me wonder if Hugo is talking about the impossibility of righteousness for a fallen creature. We aren't righteous. All that we have in terms of righteousness is the forgiveness offered us by providence, by God. So maybe the last and and the most stirring image of all of this, and I realize we've sort of passed over Fantine's death, but again, there's not a whole lot to say. She she goes ahead and kicks off and... and uh, it's very tragic, though. <laughs> it's it's so more tragic. tragic than the musical. In the musical, she sings her little song and passes peacefully. This was not peaceful. Uh-uh. This is a violent, cruel death. Well, that secret that they're keeping from her out of compassion that Cosette is not really there and that she's not going to make it to see Cosette again. They're keeping that secret for chapters and chapters. And then it's Javert who 
reveals mm-hmm. the truth. And it's heartless, merciless, cruel revelation that mm-hmm. kills her. Right. And that is so sad. That is they definitely tempered that in the in the musical. I don't know that that it's a good thing that they tempered it. I don't know if that scene communicated as powerfully as the scene in the book did. Mm-hmm. But even there, it feels like the purpose of that, that horrifying moment and then her death, it uh, it brings home the final line of our section for today. Oh my um, goodness, yeah. Which, if it's okay with you, if I'm not stealing anybody's thunder, I just want to read no. it. Fontaine was buried in the common grave of the cemetery, which belongs to everybody and to nobody, and in which the poor are lost. Fortunately, God knows where to find the soul. Fontaine was laid away in the darkness among the homeless bodies. She suffered the promiscuity of dust. She was thrown into the public pit. Her grave was like her bed. It's such a tragic, the social system did her no favors at all. It killed her. It threw her away like garbage. That's the Mm -hmm. end. And yet there's that line. Fortunately, God knows where to find the soul. That, that repetition of God being present in all of the darkest places and Fontaine being with him wherever she is now is mm-hmm. such a stark contrast to the tragedy. Yeah, I really think that's true. Yep. Yeah, he even when she dies, he says something like, "We continue on," or like, "There's a great light after death." Mm-hmm. Yeah, her features are transformed mm-hmm. after she passes. Right, she regains some of her beauty, and there's sort of a, a beatific vision after her death. But I think one of the things going on here in that tension between the the God as justice and God as more than just dichotomy is our vision of God is getting bigger. Hugo is, is ushering us into a world where God is present in everything, not just in goodness. And that seems to be reflected in the activities of our favorite nun, Sister Simplice, whose whole life has been organized around never telling a single fib not one. Also, the presence of the word fib in this story is really interesting to me. <laughs> did you notice that she used the word fib in no. the dialogue? No. <laughs> she did. She did. Hugo uh, submitted to the word fib at one point. Wow. But anyway, she she's never lied a single time in all of her life, we're given to believe. And this is where her authority and her holiness and her, her goodness comes from. And finally, after Valjean has escaped the prison and is going to go off and try and take care of Cosette before he's no doubt recaptured later. Javert comes to find him at his house and Sister Simplice is with him. And there's a question posed to her. What exactly is righteousness in this moment? Is it to continue my unbeaten streak of being an honest person? Or is it to stand with this man who is being wronged, Hmm. who's trying to do something good? And she, Hugo tells us, lies twice in quick succession like she's been doing it all her life. With no hesitation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) With no hesitation. What do you guys make of that? It's the famous, like, would you lie about hiding the Jews Mm. ethical question, right? And it reminds me of the hiding place where Cornelia Ten Boom's sister, when the Nazis bang on the door, says, yes, we're hiding Jews. And, And it works out in the end anyway. Hugo's on the complete opposite end of that spectrum. Right. Right. That the lie is made right by the cause maybe except what he's what he does is plead with god at the end of that section and say when you when sisters and police makes it up to paradise please count this lie in her favor yeah right in other words we don't know how god looks at this kind of thing but we sure hope that he defends her for this 
we also get a picture of Javert in his interactions with, is, is it Sister Sol, Solpice? What is, what is Simplice. Simplice. He, <laughs> as he's looking at her, he admires her and respects her because she represents ecclesiastical authority. Mm. And he, right. as a, you know, a, someone who follows justice down to the core, believes that ecclesiastical authority is the highest of all, and he's really devout. But the other word that's used to describe him in that association is superficial. He's devout, superficial, and correct on this point as all others. And that word caught my attention because his understanding of, of goodness is just perfection, just exactness. And I think that may be a superficial understanding of goodness. It's more complicated than that. Yeah. I don't know that the author needs to plead with God. I think God might understand that better than us. You know, That certainly seems to be one of the implications here. Who are we to say we know what's right? Mm-hmm. What is righteous? Javert has uh, no compunctions about that whatsoever. He knows exactly what's right to do in every single dingle situation. And that's superficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The law cannot account for the complexity of the human experience. Mm-hmm. Seems to be one of the things he goes on about. Yeah, that's good. And it, it cannot do it no matter what reform mm-hmm. you try to implement mm-hmm. into the system. You're never going to capture humanity. Yeah. Well, you guys, that was a fantastic discussion. Thank you for giving us your thoughts. With Valjean now free to be Valjean again in a weird backwards kind of way, we will trek off into a new set of chapters. With his own name now. That yeah. feels significant. I think so that too. That he has taken up his own name again. And the author refuses to call him anything else. Right. There was a tiny moment where it was the beginning of one. I can't remember. I can't find it. But one of the chapters in this section, we're like almost 300 pages into this book where he says, in case you were wondering, the mayor was Jean Valjean. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> So far after no. our discovery that I just laughed and laughed. I thought, really? Are you kidding me? We know. I don't think I don't know how significant this is, but I have come across it in a handful of other places recently. It is really difficult for a writer of fiction to get around the fact that people need money in order to live. It's like a constant of the human experience. And so usually, if you're going to have a really good adventure story, unless poverty is the main enemy of the story, our main character is independently wealthy and never (laughs) needs to work again a day in his life. It happens with alarming regularity. Yeah. Start paying attention to it. You will see it everywhere. Every, Every main character is rich. They're all rich. Landed gentry. It's really funny. So we have Valjean, who has now obviously left his life as Monsieur Madeleine, but we are assured by her, by Hugo that he gets to post a letter to the guy at the bank, which makes me think he's going to have plenty of money to do whatever he needs to do for the rest of his life. He also takes the candlesticks. He does take the candlesticks, although he'll never pawn those, right? But when in a pinch, you could always melt them down, you know? Or hit somebody with them, you know? Well, thank you both. And thank you listeners for joining us today on this trek through Les Miserables. Hopefully the next chapter will be less miserable, although I wouldn't hold your breath on that one. We're starting Cosette. Mm-hmm. We're starting Cosette. Oh. oh, Although the subheading is Waterloo. So oh, yeah. who knows what yeah. that's going to be? No, this is a famous chapter and it's probably worth mentioning. We're just doing Waterloo and it's going to be historical. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Okay. But it's one of the famous digressions of Les Miserables. Excellent. As famous as the sewers? Yeah. All right. 
get ready. Well, let us all prepare to digress. <laughs> we will see you next time around on how to eat an elephant. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.